0: The Lord's thoughts and ways are higher than the thoughts and ways that come from men. The Lord said to man, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's way was to create man, male and female, in his his own image and likeness. Man's way is to bring man from a lower form of life. The prophet of God has asked us to have self-respect. It's much easier to have self-respect of a proper nature when you're a descendant from God than it is from a lower type of life. God's way provides man a divine way of life. The Lord promised his children salvation in the kingdom of God if they would live and follow his ways. It is important to know that man can become godlike through the thoughts and ways of the Lord. The Lord's way was to send a Savior who would live and teach the ways of a living God. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus Christ said, I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life. The Son can do nothing of himself, the Savior said, but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son. All men should honor the Son, the Savior said, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. He that heareth my words and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. God has provided one way and only one way for his mortal children to attain godlike perfection. Jesus Christ proclaimed, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus Christ lived and exemplified the heavenly way that the Father desires all of his children to live. I am come, Jesus said, that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. The full, abundant, divine way of life can be gained by following and walking in the light of Jesus Christ. I am the light of the world, Said the Son of God, He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. That which is of God is light. He that receiveth light and continueth in God receiveth more light, and that light groweth brighter and brighter until the perfect day. By following the Savior, and by living worthy to receive the light of life, we can take on the radiance of godliness. Not only can we be children of God in his image and likeness, but we can be his sons and daughters in this life and in the kingdom of heaven. Hear this promise from the Lord. Behold, I am Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I am the life and light of the world. Verily I say unto you that as many as receive me, to them will I give power to become the sons of God. God's greatest gift to his children has been repeated in this conference many times. The Lord said, If thou wilt do good, yea, and hold out faithful to the end, thou shalt be saved in the kingdom of God, for there is no gift greater than the gift of salvation. This is the gift of all gifts. This is the diploma of all diplomas. This is the degree of salvation that qualifies one for eternal life in the kingdom of God. Jesus taught that few would find the way of salvation. He commanded his disciples to follow the Lord's way. He said, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Yes, our Heavenly Father so loved us That He sent his only begotten Son from heaven to this earth, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But few find the divine way. Only a few will follow Jesus Christ. Only a few will love God first. Only a few will keep God's commandments, because they love the lower thoughts and ways of men more than they love the higher thoughts and ways of God. And this is the condemnation, the Lord said, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. And again we read from the scriptures, For you shall live by every word that proceedeth forth in the mouth of God. For the word of the Lord is truth, and whatsoever is truth is light, and whatsoever is light is spirit, even the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And the Spirit giveth light to every man that cometh into the world, and the Spirit enlighteneth every man through the world that hearkeneth to the voice of the Spirit. And every one that hearkeneth to the voice of the Spirit cometh unto God, even the Father. The voice of the Lord continues, And if your eye be single to my glory, your whole body shall be filled with light. And there shall be no darkness in you, and that body which is filled with light comprehendeth all things. What a glorious promise from heaven! The light of the Savior is available to everyone who will follow him. This divine light, through repentance, will remove darkness and sin from the human soul. Jesus showed the light of his godliness. He taketh Peter, James, and John, and bringeth them up into a high mountain, and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, hear ye him." That commandment should ring deep into the heart of every child of God. Hear the voice of the Lord. Jesus Christ was truly a God living in a mortal body with divine power. He was sent from heaven to show mankind God's way to celestial perfection. Jesus taught his disciples how they could partake of his life, his light, and his power. He taught in parable. I am the true vine, he said, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye cannot do nothing. Ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. As the Father hath loved loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. Even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. Jesus Christ is the vine, and all who sincerely want to become godlike, prepared to live with their Heavenly Father in his kingdom, must receive their strength and power from the Son of God. No man cometh unto the Father but by me, I repeat. these words of the Saviour. The non-producing branches on the vine, some lost in the darkness of sin and the world, some weak and sick from the blight of evil, some branches fluttering in the winds of worldly pleasure and disrespect for the power to produce godlike fruit through the divine vine, having disrespect for Jesus Christ and for the Father and for their commandments, they will be pruned from the vine cut away from their source of divine nourishment and their chance to become godlike, pruned away from their divine opportunity as a child of God to partake of the light and divine way of life. The Lord has asked us to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. An apostle asks us to put on the whole armor of God. As we put on the whole armor of God, it will keep us within the light of Christ and keep the fiery darts of evil on the outside. It's a great blessing to have Jesus Christ at the head of this Church. I bear witness that his prophet is here today, his mouthpiece. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
1: 34 gifted and inspired speakers have preceded me. And on this autumn day, I feel like the last leaf on the tree. As I say a few words, proceeding, preceding President Lee's giving his final counsel and blessing. It is not a new experience for me to speak immediately preceding President Lee. I've had that privilege a score of times recently. Each time I felt like the freshman team coming out to put on a bit of an exhibition before the varsity come out for the big game. <laughs> but I regard this as a great opportunity to add my testimony. I humbly seek the direction of the Holy Spirit as I speak upon a sacred theme. We have sung in this conference a marvelous hymn, a hymn we've sung in conferences for more than a century. We thank thee, O God, for a prophet. It is distinctive with us. As a people, we sing some hymns that have come from other churches, and others sing some of ours. But only we can properly sing, We thank thee, O God, for a prophet, to guide us in these latter days. It was written more than a century ago by a man of humble circumstances who lived in Sheffield, England. He worked in the steel mills and was discharged because he joined the Mormon Church. But there burned in his heart a great and fervent testimony. And out of an overflowing spirit of gratitude he penned these marvelous lines. They have become a grateful expression of appreciation for millions over the earth. I myself have heard them sung in 21 different languages as a reverent prayer of thanksgiving for divine revelation. How thankful we ought to be, my brethren and sisters, how thankful we are prophet to God counsel us in words of divine wisdom as we walk our paths in these complex and difficult times the solid assurance we carry in our hearts the conviction that god will make his will known to his children through his recognized servant is the real basis of our faith and activity we either have a prophet or we have nothing and having a prophet, we have everything. Twelve years ago, in company with a mission president from Hong Kong, it was my opportunity to initiate the work in the Philippines. On April 28, 1961, we held a meeting that will never be forgotten by those of us who were present. We had no hall then in which to meet. We made a request to the United States Embassy for permission to meet on the porch of the memorial at the American Military Cemetery on the outskirts of Manila. We convened at 6.30 in the morning in that hallowed and sacred place where, remembered the tragedies of war, we commenced the work of teaching the gospel of peace. We called upon the only native Filipino member we had been able to find. He recounted a story which I have never forgotten. When he was a boy, he found in a garbage can an old, tattered copy of the Reader's Digest. It contained a condensation of a book giving the story of the Mormon people. It spoke of Joseph Smith and described him as a prophet. That word prophet did something to that boy. Could there actually be a prophet upon the earth, he wondered. The magazine was lost, but concern over the presence of a living prophet never left him. During the long, dark years of war and oppression, when the Philippines were occupied, finally came the forces of liberation and with them the reopening of Clark Air Base. David Lagman found employment there. His supervisor, he learned, was a Mormon, an Air Force officer. He wanted to ask him if he believed in a prophet but was afraid to do so. Finally. After much inner turmoil, he mustered the courage to inquire. Are you a Mormon, sir? The young man asked. Yes, I am, was the forthright reply. Do you believe in a prophet? Do you have a prophet in your church? We do have a prophet, a living prophet, who presides in this church and who teaches us the will of the Lord. David asked the officer to tell him more, and out of that teaching came his baptism. He was the first native elder ordained in the Philippines and today serves as president of the northern Luzon district of the Church. Now knowing for himself that there is verily a living prophet on the earth, could any people have a greater blessing than to have standing at their head one who receives and teaches the will of God concerning them? We need not look far in the world to know that the wisdom of the wise has perished, and that the understanding of the prudent has come to naught. The wisdom for which the world seek is that should seek is that wisdom which comes from God. The only understanding that will save the world is divine understanding. Surely the Lord God will do nothing but he revealeth his secrets unto his servants the prophets. It was so in the days of Amos and in all the years when holy men of God spake as they were moved upon by the Holy Ghost. Those ancient prophets warned not only of things to come, but more importantly, they became the revealers of truth to the people. It was they who pointed the way men should live if they were to be happy and find peace in their lives. I think today of a young man. I know who was a Christian trying one church after another could find none that taught of a prophet. Only among the Jewish people did he find reverent mention of the prophets, and so he accepted and embraced the Jewish religion. In the summer of 1964 he went to New York City and visited the World's Fair. He entered the Mormon battalion and saw pictures of the prophets of the Old Testament. His heart warmed within him as he heard the missionaries speak with appreciation of these great men of ages past, through whom Jehovah revealed his will. Then, as he progressed through the pavilion, he heard of modern prophets, of Joseph Smith, who was called as a prophet, a seer, a revelator. Something stirred within him. His spirit responded to the testimony of the missionaries. He was baptized. He served a mission in South America, where he had many converts, He returned home and has since become the means of bringing his family and others into the Church. It is heartwarming to hear him testify that Joseph Smith was indeed a prophet of God and that all who have succeeded him in office have been legal successors in this high and sacred calling. Could anyone willing to read without bias the story of Joseph? Doubt that he was a great foreteller of events to come. Nearly 30 years before a shot was fired, he foretold the tragic American Civil War and stated that following that, war would be poured out upon all nations. You and I are witnesses to the fulfillment of those remarkable words. He foretold that this people then living in Illinois would be driven out, would suffer much affliction, and would become a great and mighty people in the midst of the Rocky Mountains. Our presence here today, my brethren and sisters, in this great tabernacle on Temple Square is evidence of the fulfillment of those marvelous words of prophecy. It has been so with his successors. On a cold winter day in 1849, when our forebears in this valley were hungry and living on sega roots and thistletops while gold was being found in California. Brigham Young stood in the old bowery on this square and spoke prophetic words to those who felt they might leave the hardships of life here to go to the greener pastures of California. Among other things, he said, and I quote, We have been kicked out of the frying pan, into the fire, out of the fire, into the middle of the floor, and here we are and here we will stay. We shall build a city and a temple to the Most High God in this place. We will extend our settlements to the east and the west, to the north and south. and We will build towns and cities by the hundreds, and thousands of the Saints will gather in from the nations of the earth. This will become the great highway of the nations. Kings and emperors and the noble and the wise of the earth will visit us here. How could anyone stand in the visitor center right to the north of us and witness the hundreds of thousands, yes, the millions who come each year to visit us and have any doubt that Brigham Young spoke other than as a prophet? Over the years, there has been a veritable parade of notables who have found their way to the office of the First Presidency, there to meet particularly the man whom we sustain as the president of the Church and as the prophet of our day. They include leaders in the governments of the earth, in business and commerce, in education, in the professions. These are among the noble and the wise of the earth. Of whom Brigham Young spoke when we were an outcast people isolated in a mountain wilderness. Two weeks ago, we were riding a plane from San Francisco to Sydney, Australia. We noted a young man in a nearby seat. He ordered a glass of beer and then opened a book and began to read. The book was Joseph Smith, an American prophet. He began to take notes as he read. I became restless. (laughs) <laughs> as soon as the opportunity presented itself, I spoke to him. I told him that I had read that book, that I knew had known the author, and asked him about his interest. He said, among other things, that he had an interest in prophets, and that this matter of a possible modern prophet had intrigued him. He had picked up the book at the library. We had a lengthy conversation in which I bore my solemn witness that Joseph Smith was indeed a prophet of God. Not only did he speak of things to come, but more importantly, he was a revealer of eternal truth and a testifier of the divine mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. He never took another sip of that beer. I am hopeful that that young man as he continues his studies, will have come into his heart a similar testimony. I feel confident that he will. I am profoundly grateful, my brethren and sisters, not only for Joseph Smith as the prophet, who was an instrument in the hands of the Almighty in restoring this work, but also for all of those who have followed them. A study of their lives will reveal the manner in which the Lord has chosen them, has refined them, and has molded them to his eternal purposes. Joseph Smith declared on one occasion, I am like a huge rough stone rolling down from a high mountain, with all hell knocking off a corner here and a corner there. And thus I will become a smooth and polished shaft in the quiver of the Almighty. He was hated and persecuted. He was driven and imprisoned. He was beaten and mistreated, and as you read his story you see the evolution of which he spoke. There developed a power in his life. There came a refinement. There grew a love for others which even overcame his own love for life. The corners of that rough stone were knocked off, and he became a polished shaft in the hand of the Almighty. It has been so with those who have succeeded him. Through long years of dedicated service, they have been refined and winnowed and chastened and molded to the purposes of the Almighty. Could anyone doubt that after reading the lives of such men as Brigham Young, Wilford Woodruff, and Joseph F. Smith? It has been so with him who stands as the president of the Church today. Our beloved leader, President Harold B. Lee, I hope he will pardon me. I do not wish to embarrass him. But can anyone who knows something of his life deny the same influences at work? He came out of circumstances— that would today be classed as poverty. From first-hand experience, he knows the meaning of hard, manual labor. He served as a missionary and was rejected by most of those upon whom he called. He sacrificed for an education. He has known serious illness when life seemed to hang as by a thread. He has walked through deep and dark valleys of sorrow. Looking back upon the history of his life, it all appears to be part of a pattern, a refining process that he might better understand the trials, the afflictions, the sorrows of others. And yet with all of this there is a great buoyancy of spirit that rises above the tragic and sorrowful and lifts to higher ground those he touches and influences. As one who recently walked with him as a junior companion in the missions of Europe and England, I have seen young people eagerly press about him with tears in their eyes and smiles sweet and beautiful upon their faces. I have seen missionaries sit enraptured as he taught from the scriptures, speaking like the master as one having authority. I have seen little children sit motionless as he spoke their language and led them to understand the great sac- the great truths of the sacrament. I have seen elderly men and women weep as he blessed them. I have seen few things I think more touching than for a strong young man, to embrace the President and then later with tear-moistened eyes say, Never have I been so near here to heaven. As one to whom the Spirit has borne witness, I testify of his prophetic calling, and add my voice to the voice of our people over the earth, we thank thee, O God, for a prophet to guide us in these latter days. I am grateful. I am satisfied that the peace and the progress and the prosperity of this people lie in doing the will of the Lord as that will is articulated by him who shall speak to us as we close this great conference. If we fail to observe his counsel, we repudiate his sacred calling. If we abide his counsel, We shall be blessed of God. We ever pray for thee, our prophet dear, that God will give to thee comfort and cheer. As the advancing years furrow thy brow, still may the light within shine bright as now. God lives and is a revealer of eternal truth. Jesus Christ is our Savior and stands at the head of this Church. We have a prophet upon the earth, a seer and a revelator to teach us. God, give us the faith and the discipline within ourselves to follow that teaching. I humbly pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
2: In one of the most beautiful prayers ever offered— The Savior of the world invoked the blessings of the Father upon his apostles. He sensed his time was near when he was to leave them. He prayed, And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come unto thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. I have given them thy word. And the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world. Even so I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. Members of the Church are constantly being reminded that even though we are in the world, we should not be of the world. What do we mean by the world? President McKay refers to it as those alienated from the saints of God. They are aliens to the Church of Jesus Christ. It is the spirit of this alienation from which we should keep ourselves free, he said. Elder Bruce McConkie defines the world as the social conditions created by such inhabitants of the world as live carnal, sensuous, lustful lives and who are not part of the natural man Who have put off the natural man by uh, who have not put off the natural man by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. John, in his epistle, describes the world as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of life. He said, "Let not the world love not the world, neither the things of that are in the world. If any man love the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of life." is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. It is obvious that the world, as referred to by the Savior, does not mean the sphere on which we live, but is an environment created by individuals who live contrary to his teachings. Just as the Savior prayed that his apostles would not be taken out of the world— we keep and be kept but be kept from the evil of the world. So are we, as members of the church, everywhere, praying that by the power of the Holy Ghost and the priesthood we may be strengthened to withstand the world. We would not want to be free from our responsibilities of being in being taken out of, of the world, for this life is a probationary state. The world is our opportunity to prove ourselves. This is a part of the great plan of the Lord to be confronted with the things of the world, that we might overcome them and be strengthened. As the Lord showed Abraham the creations of the earth, he said, We will go down, for there is space there, and we will uh, take of the materials, and we will make an earth wherein we may dwell, and we will prove them herewith and see if they will do all things whatsoever the Lord their God shall command them. It is important that we individually— overcome the world, that every man may act in doctrine and principle pertaining to futurity according to the moral agency which has been given unto him, that every man may be accountable for his own sins in the day of judgment, says the Lord. Lehi taught, for it It, it must needs be that there is opposition in all things. If not so, righteousness could not be brought to pass, neither, neither wickedness, neither holiness, Neither misery, neither good nor bad. It matters not what our nationality, our race, our culture, our academic degree, our political or social standing. We build security and strength in our lives by living the gospel. President Joseph Fielding Smith said, There is no cure for the ills of the world except in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our hope for peace, for temporal and spiritual prosperity— and for the the eventual inheritance in the kingdom of God is found only in and through the restored gospel. May I say to members of the Church everywhere, this is how we establish Zion where we live, by living the gospel, by being pure in heart, by being worthy. The Lord has defined Zion as being the pure in heart, Let Zion rejoice, he said, for this is Zion, the pure in heart. Therefore, let Zion rejoice while all the wicked mourn. Since Zion is defined as the pure in heart, those who make up Zion must be free from worldly practices and indulgences. President Lee said in the last April conference, the rule by which the people of God must live in order to be worthy of acceptance in the sight of God is indicated in this scripture. And then he quoted... For Zion must increase in beauty, in holiness. Her borders must be enlarged. Her stakes must be strengthened. Yea, verily I say unto you, Zion must arise and put on her beautiful garments. As President McKay referred to Zion as the pure in heart, he said, The strength of the Church lies in the purity of thought and lies of its members. Then the testimony of Jesus abides in the soul, and strength comes to each individual to withstand the evils of the world. The righteous lives of members of the Church throughout the world is a great leaven to the great gospel loaf. There are many wonderful, honest men and women in the world whose lives are influenced by the teachings of the Gospel as seen in the virtuous lives of good members of the Church. Everything in the world is not evil, There are many things of virtue, many great men and women working for the finer things of life, who have high standards and live righteously. Possibly a good definition of the world would be exposure to things about us, whether good or evil, right or wrong. President Lee said on one occasion to the youth of the Church, We don't pray that you be withdrawn from into a Shangri-La away from the evils of the world, because you are to be leavened wherever you are, to bring about righteousness. But we are pleading with the Lord that you all that, that with all our might, that while you are in the world you might be kept from evil. There is a great challenge in living in the world. The concern is not where we live, but how we live. Obedience to the laws of the Lord bring happiness and peace. We never need apologize for living the standards of the Church. Listen to two stalwart members of the Church who have proven this in their lives. President John K. Edmonds, now president of the Salt Lake Temple, was an outstanding attorney in Chicago for over a quarter of a century. He said, During my life in Chicago, I have never felt the necessity of indulging in alcohol or tobacco or tea or coffee, or have I ever served them in my home. I have never felt the need to apologize for observance of Church standards. I have found no magic formula for keeping the standards of the Church. To me, the observance of these standards is a matter of will. God gives to every man and woman, to every boy and girl, who sincerely desires it, the power to keep the commandments. End of quote. DeWitt J. Paul, now serving as a mission president in California, who was an executive of one of the nation's largest financial institutions, says, Adhering to gospel standards has never uh, stood in my way. Quite to the contrary, doing doing so has been an asset rather than a liability. Moreover, I have have not had any difficulty or found it embarrassing. In a world of rather wishy-washy conviction— one who believes in something and lives in accordance with his belief is usually admired and respected. I never appreciated this so much as when the chairman of the board of directors of my company one day said to the board members, I am retiring and I, su- and I propose Mr. Paul as my successor. As you know, Mr. Paul is a Mormon. Mormons have rather high standards to live by and among other things they don't smoke or drink. I have kept my eye on this fellow for many years, and never once have I seen him make a slip. I recommend him to you as a man of integrity. And then uh, he says further, uh, President Paul says, It is my experience that there are a lot lot of fine people in the world. Just because they don't have my outlook on life uh, has never given me reason to alienate them through prudish self-righteousness. Perhaps therein lies the secret of living in the world without being a part of the world. End of quotation. We are living in the most glorious time since the creation of the world. Never before has man been able to do so many remarkable things, uh, see and know so much about the world, have so many conveniences, enjoy so many luxuries. We are living in the dispensation of the fullness of times in which the Lord said, I will gather together all things which are, uh, things both which are in heaven and which are in earth. For I designed to reveal unto my church things which have been kept hid from the foundation of the world, things that pertain to the dispensation of the fullness of times. The prophet Joel prophesied of the times in which we live when he said And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaidens in in those days will I pour out my spirit. I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth. The Lord has already commenced to pour out his spirit upon all flesh. Since the restoration of the gospel, the Spirit of the Lord has inspired men in the world to accomplish things almost unbelievable to those who behold them. We are able to travel all over the world at incredible speeds. Inventions too numerous to mention bless the lives of the inhabitants of the world. President Wilford Woodruff described this day when he said, The day has already dawned when the light of heaven is to fill the earth. The day in which the Lord has said nothing shall be kept hidden. The day in which everything that has been kept from the knowledge of man, even since the foundation of the earth, must be revealed. It is the day in which the gospel is to be preached unto every nation, tongue, and people for a witness of that of what shall follow. The prophet Joseph Smith, as he wrote an editorial for the Times and Seasons in 1840, Two said something regarding the purpose of the church and also of the great joy of living in this day. He said, "The building of Zion is a cause that has interested the people of God in every age. It is a theme upon which prophets, priests and kings have dwelt with peculiar delight. They have looked forward with joyful anticipation into the day in which we live, and fired with heavenly and joyful anticipation. They have sung and written and prophesied of this day, but they died without the sight. May we appreciate the privilege we have, the privilege that is ours in living in this time, in the beautiful, wonderful world in which we live. May we let the gospel light guide us to be in the world and yet not partake of the evil of the world. I so ask in the name of Jesus Christ, Amen.